Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode reenacts scenes of war and includes gunfire. Listener discretion advised. You're tuning into Service. Johnny Bestricka, Private First Class. Veteran stories of hunger and war. They joined the service. Remember Pearl Harbor. Remember Pearl Harbor. A production from iHeartRadio. We used to just give these people the food from our mess kits. You ate what you could get and be thankful for what you were getting. I'm your host, Jacqueline Raposo. What sets a World War II Marine apart? Of the over 16 million men who would come to fight for the United States in World War II, only 660,000 of them were Marines. That 660,000 compared to over 4 million in the Navy, or 11 million in the Army. Norman Rubin was one Marine among them. Born in 1919, Norm was only 10 when the stock market crash plunged the country into the Great Depression, leaving many jobless and hungry and standing in the breadlines we've talked about in episodes past. By 1937, another recession had curbed any progress starting to be made, and so many young men tried to enlist just to get fed. Norm was lucky. He got in. Norm was unlucky. In 1937, we still didn't see a world war coming. And so now, from his home in Spokane, Washington, let's slow and sit and spend some time with 100-year-old Norman Rubin. My name is Norman Rubin. I was born in Philadelphia, in 1919. 
My father was a fine furrier that came over from Russia, and my mother came from Russia also. We lived in a Russian neighborhood that talked Russian and ate Russian. She went up to 7th Street where all of the push carts were. She would go to see what they were selling, and whatever they were selling, she bought. Everything you could eat, they sold. Fruit, vegetables, meat, fish, everything right out of their push carts, owned by people from all over Philadelphia. They would open on a Thursday and close out on a Sunday. Everybody in South Philadelphia was walking those streets at that time, and they were buying. And she made a meal out of it. That was it. And you ate it no matter what it was. When I was 10 years old, my father left my mother. I was about 16 years old, right in the middle of the Depression, going to Overbrook High School, trying to get a job so I could help my mom. I had two brothers. My oldest brother was living with us, working as a drugstore attendant and my brother Jack helped him. That helped everything. But we had a closet, and we had an encyclopedia in it, and I read all about the Pacific and was excited about that. The papers sometimes advertised the Marines down in South America, and I had never been to South America as a kid, and that sounded like it would be a good idea. Get away from the family, make money, have clothing. That was one less mouth to feed. That helped make me go to the Marine Corps recruiting station. You had to be 18 to join the Marine Corps. He asked when I was born, which was October 1st, 1919, but I told him 1918 because there were 17,300 Marines all over the world. They weren't taking 10 Marines a month at that stage of the game. They sent a man around to talk to my mother. She played the game with me. We lost my birth certificate. Well, that was a lie to begin with. And so consequently, they hired me in at 18 years of age. They made the arrangements for me to get a train to Parrish Island, South Carolina. Ten future Marines walked down to a boat landing got on the boat, told where to sit, shut up. They rode on that river up to the base where there were steps that looked like they were three stories high. We had to walk up the steps and stop at the first story, then the second story, and then the third story. That's where the mess hall was. 
we sat down and they brought us food. <laughs> they just brought plates of food. We ate until there was no food left. Corned beef, roast beef, the rest was potatoes and vegetables. They were never going to get rid of us, I'll tell you. We ate until we were sick almost. <laughs> of the ten of us, eight were sent home. Two of us went to Platoon 1. We were sent down to where the supply room was, where they issued uniforms. I was a senior in high school and I went in the Marine Corps. And Paris Island fed me and clothed me. And they fed me pretty good. They had a man for life. That was in January 1937. They transferred me to Philadelphia. They were just building the new cruisers, the Philadelphia, the Brooklyn, the Savannah, I was assigned to the USS Philadelphia. I put her in commission. I never missed a meal. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Where they did the cooking was up on the top deck. The second deck down is where you sat. You had benches that fit up on the ceiling, and you had to clean all that up and put those benches up before they would turn you loose. The Marines provided two men for the benches, and they just kept bringing food to your table in bowls. And whoever emptied that bowl last had the bowl up in his hand yelling orderly, and you had all you could eat. Everything that they could make, I ate. Any kind of food. They would always have meat. Friday evening, they had hamburgers. Saturday mornings, they had hot dogs, and everything was eaten, nothing taken back, no garbage, because it was the middle of the Depression. A lot of our boys were fresh out of college because the family couldn't keep them in college, so they joined the Marines. And it was wonderful aboard the Philadelphia, because the Philadelphia carried the flag and that was where the Admiral was. The Admiral was in his stateroom on the port side. The captain was on the starboard side, and each one had their own cooks. In October of 1940, 15 African-American sailors stationed on the USS Philadelphia sent a letter to the editor of the Pittsburgh Courier, detailing their work as chambermaids and dishwashers making beds and shining shoes, noting the unequal pay they were given compared to white sailors with less training or experience, how they didn't sit at tables to eat but had to make do standing, how their rations were sometimes meager so to pad the officers' meals. This is not something we've not heard from our veterans this season. My brother and two of his friends joined the Navy. My father was upset. Because of Afro-American background, the Navy could only accept them as mess attendants. They had black sailors unloading ammunition and loading ammunition, and it blew up and killed over 100 of them. From that day on, black sailors didn't want to do that kind of work. You can't blame them. 
And so let's consider the political theory of divide and rule here, or divide and conquer, as used in military strategy. How do oligarchs maintain power or extreme wealth? They pit struggling, oppressed groups against each other, so that they blame each other and fight for what little they can get. And so while we should respect that all of this season's veterans were hungry and desperate for work before World War II, let's also hold that African Americans suffered unemployment rates double the national average during the Great Depression, and that upon publication of their letter, the 15 black sailors were dishonorably discharged from the Navy. We'll be right back. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Service, veteran stories of hunger and war from iHeartRadio. I'm Jacqueline Raposo. 
Norm spent two years aboard the Philadelphia largely in the Caribbean, and then, as we're about to hear, found himself stationed in Iceland, which was a sovereign kingdom in personal union with Denmark, both staunchly neutral countries at this point in the war. But then Germany invaded Denmark in April of 1940, and so Britain invaded Iceland the following month, facing almost no resistance from the minuscule Icelandic military, and eventually bringing in troops from Canada to defend the vital port island. As we were still technically neutral as well, Roosevelt waited for a proper invitation from the Icelandic government before sending marines over to protect the Icelanders and British troops there. But, as we well know by now, on December 7, 1941, everything would change. And that would especially be so for those already in the Marines. My job was gun striker of gun number one on the bridge of the starboard side. There were four guns on the starboard side, four guns on the port side. That was the Navy's job, port side. On the starboard side, we'd had gun number one and the machine guns up on the top of the bridge with the 20 millimeters, which was a new gun at that time, to guard the ship. I tried being a good Marine, and they made me the captain's orderly. My job was to stand in front of his cabin's door announcing the executive officer's request for permission to see the captain. Stop anybody from trying to get in or get out. So that's what our job was in the Navy, to be the captain's orderlies, the admiral's orderlies, the president's orderlies. The president got on the ship in the Navy Yard in South Carolina. And I was assigned as the president's orderly. Except when we met with Churchill in the South Atlantic. He was on the HMS Hood. I was assigned to the barge that picked up Churchill from HMS Hood they had a meeting for two and a half hours and we stood at attention outside their cabin after which we sent churchill back to his small boat back to the philadelphia and away we went that was 1940. at that time the war was on in europe The Germans have been bombing London, so the Marines were providing food and ammunition. So I couldn't get out of the Marine Corps because they locked everybody up that was in the Marine Corps. I'm almost 20 years old, sitting with the 1st Marine Brigade in Iceland, protecting an army unit that came out of Europe and was attacked by the Germans in France. The Germans sent planes over and you could see them flicking their cameras, taking pictures of our positions. We were up there when Pearl Harbor was attacked. Call NBC, call NBC, this is NBC, 
I was sent to the 11th Marines, an artillery unit attached to the 1st Marine Division on Guadalcanal that went to Tinian, Saipan, Bougainville, and so forth. The Marines assaulted the islands and took them back from Japan. I was a master gunnery sergeant then, and in charge of getting everybody ready to go to war. Keep them loaded with artillery and also small gunfire and other things. We had 105 millimeter guns. In addition to that, we had 155 millimeter tanks. Guns that can shoot 25 miles. The artillery is called in by the infantry, and as a master gunnery sergeant, I was told by our officers what we were shooting, and how we were shooting, and where we are shooting, and when we are shooting, what coordinates to hit. Who is on the coordinate? The infantry of the Marines. You don't want to hit them, you want to get ahead of them. So with them, there are artillery observers on the front lines, listening to the captains in charge of his infantry people. When he's told to move, he tells the artillery, we are moving and you're to cover us as far north to coordinate so-and-so. They know exactly where they're going to hit. What I really remember, I was sitting on Guam, getting ready to go into Japan. The U.S. Navy went into the Sea of Japan and fired upon the Japanese Navy anchored within Formosa area. We were all prepared aboard ship for landing near Yokohama. We heard the general in charge of the Marines requiring the general of the Japanese Army his surrender. We were excited to think that he was demanding the surrender of Japan because we knew that the Japanese army was different. Wherever the Japanese went, the Japanese dug in and everything. My fellow Americans, the thoughts and hopes of all America, indeed of all the civilized world, are centered tonight on the battleship Missouri. There, on that small piece of American soil, anchored in Tokyo Harbor, the Japanese have just officially laid down their arms. They have signed terms of unconditional surrender. 
when it happened, all I could think of, could I get a phone call to my wife, Marjorie? She had put up with me through the war. She was a beautiful, wonderful, full-blooded nurse from the Women's Hospital Philadelphia. She was just one Marine's wife. I'll tell you, it was just ecstatic for me to be able to talk to her. And I did on a Sunday afternoon in Guam. And they had to pull the phone away from my ear. <laughs> Norman and Marjorie had gotten married in January of 1941. And he says more than any food he missed during the war, he missed Marjorie. He didn't receive any packages overseas because the 1st Marine Battalion were taking and retaking these Pacific Islands. And many didn't have message centers set up. You had to be a hook or a crook, (laughs) one or the other, to get it done. (laughs) Norm stayed in the Marines through the Korean War and the Cold War, deciding to retire in the summer of 1959. I retired as a major because Marjorie and I had a son, and it just seemed like Marjorie had had enough of the Marine Corps. Because if you're a Marine, you're a Marine. That's it. You're not a part Marine. You're a whole Marine. And you're just made to go to war. And I asked Marjorie if she would put up with me going to San Diego State. And she said, absolutely. And so that's what we did. The Marine Corps was my greatest thing I ever did beside Marion, the most beautiful lady in the world. And she was a beautiful mother that raised a really fine young man. And essentially, that is the story of my life. Norm got his degree in economics and worked as a data systems analyst, first at General Dynamics and then until retirement on gas turbine engines at Solar International. He lives in Spokane, Washington, and speaks so lovingly of his wife and family that I encourage you to hear more of his story in our episode, All's Fair in War and Lasting Love. You can also find more about Norman at his page at servicepodcast.org, and an extra clip of his near run-in with a German submarine at our Instagram and Facebook. We're at Service Podcast. In our next episode, Sister Melanie Kambek shares her childhood as a Croatian immigrant, how hard she worked to put herself through nursing school, her experience as an army nurse, and her entry into the convent. Until then, Service is a production from iHeartRadio and me, Jacqueline Raposo, with Steve Jackson as our on-site engineer in Spokane, Gabrielle Collins as our supervising producer, and Christopher Hasiotis as our executive producer. Thank you to Norm's son Rick for helping coordinate some details for this episode. Brett Bowers at the Man Grindstaff VA Medical Center in Spokane for connecting us with Norm, and writer Cindy Haval for connecting us with Brett. Cindy's book, War Bonds, is a beautiful collection of greatest generation love stories. You can find more details at our website. There, you can also send a message to any of the veterans you're hearing from this season. Thank you for listening, and thank you to those serving and those who have served.
I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.